Faster than a speeding bullet. More powerful than a locomotive. Able to leap tall buildings in a single bound. Superman! Yes, Superman! Strange visitor from another planet who came to Earth with powers and abilities far beyond those of mortal men. Superman! Who disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. Hello, and welcome to another thrilling episode of FW Presents, the jaw-dropping, gobsmacking anthology show of the Fire & Water Podcast Network. I am your host this time, Ryan Daly, and I am happy to welcome a fellow podcaster that I always enjoy, but with whom I have only had the occasion to record with one other time, I think. He is the host of Superman Forever Radio. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Mr. Bob Fisher. Happy Thanksgiving, Bob. Well, thank you, Ryan. Happy Thanksgiving to you, too. This is a pleasure, and thanks for bringing me back onto the Fire & Water Podcast Network. Absolutely. This is a thrill, and the first time I've been on FW Presents, so... Hopefully wow. not the last. Hopefully yeah, I know. I hope we come back again. Yeah. Uh, well, anybody who knows you knows that you are a huge Superman fan. But the last time that we recorded together, which was for my uh, Secret Origins podcast, we didn't get to talk about Superman. We actually talked about the Trigger Twins, which was fun enough for me because I got to learn yes. some trivia about old Western TV shows like Maverick and Have Gun Will Travel. So. Oh, good. Yes, yeah. that's right. That's right. The Trigger Twins. Now I remember. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That was a lot of fun. I enjoyed that because it got me out of my comfort zone, brought back some memories of Westerns that I had read as a kid and watched on TV. You're right. Very good. I would say you made that fun. <laughs> you made that fun. <laughs> well, yeah. But you are, a, yeah, you are primarily a Superman guy, uh, and I've been kind of jonesing to talk about Superman in some fashion for a little bit. Oh, good. Um, but figuring out what to talk about was kind of the hardest part because a lot of my favorite Superman stories are – larger and more epic sagas and right. i'm including more recent stuff quote unquote recent um but stuff like <laughs> all-star superman uh the story mm -hmm. from superman confidential that was collected as superman kryptonite by darwin cook and tim sale uh, um, i didn't want to do anything that big i wanted to right. cover a single issue story so i flipped through my hardcover collection of adventures of superman by gil kane and almost immediately I remembered this one story that I really, really liked. It is Action Comics number 554. But before we get into that story, Bob, for any listener that might not know, can you give us just the short version of your Superman fandom? When and how did it start? Uh, George Reeves on uh, television. And uh, this is the really, the really short version is uh, I was a little kid, but I was watching George Reeves on the adventures of TV, on the adventures of TV, the adventures of the Superman TV show in first run in real time when it was first on the air before reruns. And uh, so a little kid, I was four, but I got to watch the last three seasons of that show in real time. 
So I remember George Reeves' death and all of that. But one summer, uh, I was four years old and uh, had been watching Superman at home, and I'm visiting my cousin in Manteo, North Carolina. That's M-A-N-T-E-O. They don't pronounce the T. Manteo, North Carolina. And uh, I said, hey, it's time for Superman. I'm a little kid, and I said, it's time for Superman. Let's go watch Superman. My cousin said, well, they didn't get it. They had one TV station in Manteo in the 50s. And uh, it wasn't on. And my cousin, who was a year and a half older, so he was maybe almost six. And I was almost five, I guess, four, almost five. And he said, well, let's go out to the barn. I got something you might like. We went out to my grandfather's barn. We had to steal the key that he kept in a certain spot to open the padlock to get in the barn. (laughs) And uh, there was a big old black traveling trunk in that barn. And my cousin opened it, and there were probably three or four dozen comics from the uh, late 30s up to the late or early 50s. 52, I guess, was the most recent one at the time. And right on top was Superman number 43 from 1946. And he gave me that comic and said, here's some Superman. I had never seen Superman in color. I had only seen him in the black and white suit. So here's a comic book. I didn't know what a comic book. I was a little kid. I took it in the house and uh, looked through it. When mother got there, I sat on the arm of the chair, and she read it to me over and over. And I would say, what's that word? What's that? I learned to read short story. I learned to read reading Superman number 43 from 1946, those three stories over and over and over again. I still have about a dozen or a little more than a dozen of those comics that were in that uh, trunk. Don't know what happened to the rest of them. But that's what started my comic collecting was that old trunk of golden age comics and uh then superman it just i just never stopped uh, from that point on I, in fact that very summer i bought my first i laid down my first dime for a comic book in a store and it was an adventure comic that had a picture of superboy on the cover yeah and uh that's what started it and i never quit i mean i dropped out a little bit here and there But overall, since that summer, I have been reading and buying Superman comic books. Through the 60s, at 12 cents a piece, I was buying pretty much everything DC put out. Uh, I was a DC guy, not a Marvel guy. My older cousin eventually moved over to Marvel. So when we got together in the summers, he was still reading. Even as teenagers, uh, from that point on, we both read comics, but he switched over to Marvel in the mid-60s. And uh, then in the summer, I'd take a box of my DC comics that I'd collected or bought through the year, and he'd do the same with his Marvel. And we'd swap. We'd read them all. You know, we'd read each other's comics. And that's how we kept up with Marvel and DC without actually buying them. We'd swap (laughs) once a year. So, uh, yeah, that was cool. That's cool. So that's really my comic book story in, in in a nutshell there. George Reeves and then that first Superman comic. And from then on, it was like, <laughs> yeah, boy. That's even awesome. at a time when you didn't even know, you know, artists, as far as I knew, one guy did the writing and the drawing and the coloring and everything. I didn't know you had a writer and a scripter <laughs> and a plotter and an inker. And a, I didn't know you had all that stuff. And since DC didn't publish until probably early to mid-60s. Gil Kane was one of the first. We're talking about Gil Kane earlier. He, later, he's one of the first names I remember in a DC comic. Yeah. Uh, uh, Gardner Fox, Gil Kane, some of those names. But you didn't see Kurt Swan's name on a Superman comic book. Yeah. Kurt Schaffenberger. I had no idea who these guys were. But yeah, now it's fun. Now I 
now I have a lot of uh, knowledge and stuff in my brain about Superman that uh, I do love to talk about. Well, cool, cool, because I'm going to pick your brain with a couple of questions. Oh, sure. Um, not, not trivia questions so much as just sort of like gauging your interests and your, your particular love for things. So right. first one, what is your favorite era of Superman? You can break it down by decade or a certain you know, team or kind of like age. Uh, mm. Like what would you say generally is your favorite era of Superman stories? Uh, Silver Age from basically 1958 to 1968. That 10 years right there is my sweet spot. 58 to 68. Superman is at his most powerful. Uh, he is, you know, he's everything that that I enjoy in reading a, a Superman comic. A guy who can move planets, juggle planets basically, but chooses not to because it's not the right thing to do. That always was very impressive to me that a man with this kind of power – only uses it to help others uh it was um so that that time period six uh 58 to 68 uh, i still like the bronze age and i love the golden age mm -hmm. of the you know take no crap superman throwing them out of windows and up against walls and stuff golden age superman would let a plane of people crash if it's bad guys and he'd say well no big loss they were bad guys so, you know, but uh, uh, for me personally, when I want to just read for fun and go back to something that, like Shag will say, to find my joy, it's uh, late 50s to late 60s. I was thinking about this, like trying to think of the answer myself, and I might default to, you know, post-crisis Burn, Wolfman, Ordway era, just because I've probably right. read the most of that. Mm -hmm. But I also, I mean, it's not technically Superman, although he, he's, he gets co-billing, um, but I, I really have a fondness for a lot of the world's finest from the dollar era. Um, oh, yeah, I love with those. The world, with the, the Superman and Batman team-ups. I really yeah. dig those, and, and those might be some of my favorite Superman stories. I kind of I, I didn't want to throw those in because it's like, I don't want this episode to have to be like Superman, but he's sharing the spotlight with Batman. <laughs> he, he has enough of a problem with that. Right. So, right. Well, um, I have to be careful because um, during the height of my uh, comic collecting, uh, I had as many Batman comics as I did Superman. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, you, you go to the, in those days, the drugstore or the pharmacy or I guess a pharmacy and a drugstore are the same thing, right. but grocery stores and wherever you could find comics on the rack. Uh, if there was a Batman comic, I bought that. And if there was DC, you know, if it was DC, basically, right. uh, I bought it. So, uh, but I understand, you know, you're, you're younger than I am. And a lot of guys your age came in during the, uh, the John Byrne uh, reboot and a well, lot of those guys. The Batman were... movie was really my interest into regular collecting. I had a few GI Joe comics like the year before that, but uh, really mm. my gateway to comics was the 1989 Batman movie. That was what started. And historically, I have always been a bigger Batman fan. Mm -hmm. Well, that was um, a great I, movie. I, I, that I had may to... still be my favorite Batman movie. Yeah, I had to admit to Michael Bailey that you know <laughs> my first comic book impression of Superman. I knew who he was before, but my first impression of Superman in comics was Frank. Miller's The Dark Knight Returns, which is not a good representation. And because, oh. for that reason, for a decade or so, I had a bias against Superman. I thought he yeah. was a dumb character. I thought he didn't, you know, I, I couldn't connect with him. And, and I had that. So it's taken me a long time. And now I can, you know, Superman is right up there. He, he is one yeah. of my favorite DC characters and like that. And I, I'm more to the, like, I, I still love Batman, but a lot of times I hate Batman fandom and like the, yes. the, the oversaturation <laughs> that he has and, and the way yeah. that characters treated sometimes so i've kind of like in this 
was like, no, screw Batman, or, you know, even F Batman, as they say in the trailer as for the Titans say, TV right. show. I would rather talk about Superman because he needs more love. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, Dark Knight Returns was not one of my favorites either. I, uh, mm-hmm. yeah, but starting in around 1985, 86, I had some real problems with the reboot. Mike Bailey and I, mentioning Mike Bailey and I, we did a show a couple of years ago, a crossover between his show and mine, talking about that John Byrne Man of Steel series, looking at it gener- generationally. Mm-hmm. Generationally? Yeah, that's a word. Uh, because to him, that was his, that's his sweet spot, like so many people your ages. And, and to me, it almost told me to go away and never read another Superman comic ever again. Yeah. Cause it was so different, so drastically different than anything I had was accustomed to. And I was an adult. I was in my thirties when that happened. So I had been reading comics for over 30 years when John Byrne came in and, and changed it. And I think I'm seeing a bunch of uh, post crisis people reacting the way I did to John Byrne. They're acting that way now to uh, Brian Michael Bendis. Yeah. Because he's he's uh, he's changing it. DC yep. is changing it all. It's all being changed. So, yeah, post crisis is gone, fellas. Then getting back to the question, um, I, I yeah. can probably figure it out based on your your sweet spot. You mentioned the Silver Age, but do you have a favorite particular writer or artist or sort of creative team? Uh, yeah, during the Silver Age, it was Ed Hamilton writing. He was a great science fiction writer and uh, wrote hundreds of Superman and Superboy comics during the time of that time period. Uh, so Ed Hamilton uh, hooked up with Kurt Swan. That's it. That I don't think it gets any better. You're getting a great science fiction story drawn by, in my mind, the ultimate, the, the, the gold standard for what Superman should look like. So to me, that's just that it just doesn't get any better than that because I still, even to this day, like done in ones. I like to pick up a comic book, read the story, and say, "Wow, that was good or bad or whatever." But it's there, beginning, middle, and an end. Mm-hmm. And today's long form storytelling is not really meant for guys like me or guys who like done in one stories. Unless you wait six months and pick it up as a trade or a collected issue and then read it all at one time, like a graphic novel, which I assume is what they're pretty much writing for now. They don't really write stories to be done in ones. But yeah, Ed Hamilton. Ed Hamilton was – also, as we get into the Bronze Age, Carrie Bates and Kurt Wan. Uh, Carrie did some good stuff. We've got Paul Kupperberg towards the end of that time doing some great Superboy stuff. But push come to shove, you say you can only have one writer, it will be Ed Hamilton, followed closely in the early Silver Age even by uh, Jerry Siegel himself. He yeah. wrote some great, great, great Superman stories. In fact, I bet at least three of the of his stories are in my top ten. Wow. All the time. So, uh, yeah. Uh, favorite depiction of Superman in other media besides comics? <laughs> yeah, that's tough. That's really tough. Because um, obviously the George Reeves show has, you know, some emotional attachment. It was my first Superman as a little kid. To me, that is Superman right. when I watch that show, even today, with the bad set and the changing of the colors of the costume as the year, and they're trying to figure out how to do color television. Mm -hmm. 
but George Reeves made that. But when you look at it, Christopher Reeve is just he he's he's kind of perfect in that first movie and most of the second movie. Um just really good as Superman. Not a fan, a huge fan of the stumbling bumbling kind of dummy Clark Kent. But in the, in TV it would be uh, George Reeves in uh, the movies it would be Christopher Reeve. Uh, I mean, I, again, showing my age, but also, uh, I mean, I have a particular love for Superman, the animated series. Oh, yeah, yeah. I would add that, too. Uh, you add that with with um, the radio show, Fleischer Cartoons, and yeah. then the animated series yeah. with George and Chris. That's a good top five right there. Plus there's the, the, you know, the Justice League movie with Superman with the airbrushed mustache <laughs> removed from his yeah. face. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> poor, poor Henry. Felt so bad for Henry and Brandon both. Yeah. They just. Mm. Well, Brandon's getting another shot of the apple on the. Yeah, boy, looking forward to that. I, I other than the black in the the symbol, which I I grant. I mean, right. obviously they're going for the Kingdom Come look and like the exactly. that version of Superman. But other yeah. than that black coloring, yeah. just from what I've seen of the promo shots, that is the best I have ever seen the Superman costume look in live action. Me too. Like any movie, anything like I just I saw the promo shot for that. I was like, I love the way that fits. I love the color. I love everything. Everything about it. If the black yeah, was like I, a yellow or gold, that would be perfect. Totally agree with you. I think I think I even said that on on Facebook that it mm-hmm. it is probably my favorite live action Superman costume. Yeah. And in the black S, I get what they're doing with the Kingdom Come. But I, I agree, agree with you. Yeah. You put a yellow S on the back of that cape and a traditional S on his chest. And you've got almost the perfect Superman live-action costume on a guy that looks like Superman. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, uh, nothing, you know, against Mr. Hecklin, Tyler Hecklin. Mm-hmm. I think he's got the right attitude, carries himself well, but he doesn't really look like Superman. But he acts it okay. So, All right, two more questions. Yeah. Favorite supporting character besides Lois Lane? Jimmy Olsen. Okay. I really love Jimmy Olsen, particularly Silver Age. And people always comment to him about him saying, well, that was the silly, the, the silliest part of the Silver Age, which as a whole is silly. That's the word I hear all the time. Silly, silly Silver Age. And that comes from people who have only looked at covers of Jimmy Olsen comics and see, you know, Lizard Boy or this thing or that thing. But uh, you have to remember, there were three individual stories in every one of those comics. Yeah. So, yeah, there was a lot. But Jimmy Olsen for Superman has never been done properly. And uh, um, he's always used as comic relief, which is fine. Even the modern comic, there's a modern Jimmy Olsen miniseries on now. And uh, it's comic. It's, it's funny. It's humorous. It's for comic relief. It's not a serious pal of Superman kind of thing. Uh and as Superboy, that was something else that post-crisis did away with. And that's what I'm you know, telling these people who are looking forward to the crisis coming up. A lot of people were killed in that big crisis story, <laughs> you know, including Supergirl and Superboy. And Flash. And, I was, I was kind exactly. Of, I, was, I was watching one of the promos for that show today. I was like, 
you know, if they're really faithful to that comic, half of the cast of, the, of these TV series is not going to be around for the next they're season. They're not going to be here next season. You know, you're going to have to do Flash with Wally, and you're going to have to get away with Supergirl. And I, don't, I can't imagine they're going to do that, but we'll see. I think that's why they're bringing in all the different Supermen. That's yeah. so they can kill off Superman without killing off Superman. I'm actually, I'm half expecting them to do a sort of a, a flip on the shot with Supergirl holding a dead Superman in her arms. Yeah, I think like, they will do that. Yeah. I think they will. Uh, but can she hold up Brandon Routh? He's he's, he's a big man. You can do it with wires. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, so I'm looking forward to that. But as Superboy, that's what I was getting at. <clears throat> Superboy had uh, uh, equally good cast of characters, of which Pete Ross uh, has never been done properly in live action. They always use him, well, not not well. And he, it, it, imagine if you were Superboy. You've got these powers, you're in high school, your best friend knows who you are, but he doesn't tell you or anybody else. And in fact, helps you keep that secret unbeknownst to you as Superboy. It's, it's the best friend ever. And I plug that because my next episode is all about Pete Ross, Superboy's best friend. Nice. nice. Uh, I should be out hopefully before Thanksgiving. If not, it'll be out before Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> As I've gotten older, I, I really have a sort of new appreciation for Ma and Pa Kent, you know, mm. Clark's mm-hmm. parents um, right. in, in various forms of like media and everything, just what they do for the character, the grounding and the humanity that they give him um, exactly. and his attachment, really which, which mm-hmm. I think I, I don't want to, I don't want to get into like a whole thing, but I, I think one of my problems with man of steel, and I have said this before is I felt like they favored his connection to Jor-El and his Kryptonian half at the expense of his human side. And I felt like mm-hmm. that was a misstep. Yeah. Wow. You're doing that's, that's again, a generational difference to me. Superman's the real guy the strange visitor and Clark is the disguise. And, uh, there was a line in, I guess it was Lois and Clark when he was telling Terry Hatcher who he was Lois Lane. And he said that, well, no, Superman's what I can do. Clark is who I am. Hmm. Well, that threw away 35 years of history with that one line Hmm. because up to that point and up to the John Burns reboot, Superman was the guy. Clark Kent was the mild-mannered reporter disguised. And I've always thought that was even more poignant uh, and made Ma and Pa Kent and the lessons he learned about being human even more poignant with him being an alien and having to understand and and do these things. Because we don't know what his chemistry, his mental makeup, his DNA will bring to the table at that point. So I love the fact that the Kents were the grounding force but I also like the idea that it's the grounding force that lets this alien know who humans are and how to relate with him, not necessarily making him more human, although that is the result. You know, it is the upbringing of the Kents. And, you know, and, and, and that's one thing Mike Bailey and I talked about and a few others in the Superman, you know, pre and post crisis the big difference is the Kents survived in post-crisis. They were there in the adult Superman's life. Mm-hmm. And I always thought that was a little weird. I love some of those stories, the Brainiac story and so many of those other really good stories. But there is still something about when in the Silver Age, Clark thinking about his parents and how he could hopefully, you know, make them proud or do do well for them and keep their teaching in mind. 
but he didn't necessarily fly back to the farm and I don't want to be negative, but kind of mope and whine a little bit and doubt, mm-hmm. you know, he needed that sometimes to get his batteries recharged or something, you know, to get grounded again so he can go back home. A lot of adults don't have that luxury mm-hmm. uh, of going back and talking to mom and dad at the farm when you want to, or you're in trouble. And, uh, it was interesting and I'm not saying I hated it any more than I, you know, I prefer a non-married Superman other than him married to Lois. But I don't hate the fact that he's married to Lois. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, 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 of course. Yeah. You know, it's kind of people say that, well, it was the Kents that grounded him, yes, and they loved him being there in the adult Superman world. And that's kind of where I I agree totally that the Kents took this little alien child and raised him as a, uh, a, a, a mid-American, middle-of-the-American kid, just an American kid. And uh, uh, I love that aspect, but I don't want him to ever forget that he is an alien with tremendous power because to me, that's what keeps him grounded. That's where he knows Uh, because without the Kents, we don't know what he would have been. And there have been other stories, obviously, Red Sun and other stories that that have gone on and said, well, what happens if the rocket landed over here instead of over there? And those are all legitimate takes on things. He might have grown up Amish. You know, if that exactly. the Davis story. <laughs> we would have never heard of him. He just <laughs> stayed on the farm, and, yeah. you know. But yeah, it, it could have been anything. And uh, I like that investigating. Uh, my only problem with modern people, modern stories investigating stories like that is what I said earlier. Instead of it being one story, twenty-two to thirty-two pages, it's twelve issues mm-hmm. at five or more dollars. Each <laughs> yeah. for that one story. So, you know, there's a big difference. But uh, all in all, yeah, I still love that kind of thing, the Kents. That's a good choice. All right. Last one then. Favorite villain not named Lex Luthor. Oh, <laughs> uh, that's easy. Brainiac. Yeah. Oh, my God. Brainiac is so, so good and terrifying when done properly. Mm-hmm. And, um, uh, yeah, I've loved Brainiac since the first time I encountered him as a little kid, even when he was almost goofy. Yeah. But other writers, good science fiction writers, Ed Hamilton, that I mentioned earlier, and Kerry Bates and some of those guys started to work with him. And then even in post-crisis, when um, well, I guess it was Jeff Johns that did that Brainiac story, right. uh, that got me back into comics, actually. I had dropped out for a while, a couple of years. And the Brainiac story, I was in a comic shop just it was just one of those days, you know, my wife was in the uh, drugstore and I said, I'm going to walk down the comic shop. It's only a block away. Mm-hmm. Went into the comic shop and I was just talking and, and uh, said, what's going on in the Superman world these days? And the girl said, well, you might like this. This is pretty good. And uh, the trade had just been, come out that week of the collection. So I bought that and then went and got all the floppies for it. I don't know why I do stuff like that. You got <laughs> the trade. Why do you need to go get the floppies? I don't know. It's a thing, okay? <laughs> so, uh, but yeah, that story got me back in, and uh, it's a great Brainiac. It is, it's a it really, really good Brainiac. I think it's criminally negligent on Warner Brothers' part that they haven't had a terrifying Brainiac in a movie. Oh, yeah, that exactly. Is, I have a soft spot still, and, and part of it is comics, but a lot of it is from the animated series that are referenced. I really like both Parasite and Metallo. Mm-hmm. Um, I like this guy, and I also just for the sheer goofiness of it, 
I love Titano because I love the idea of a giant like, King Kong gorilla that shoots kryptonite vision kryptonite. out of his eyes. Yes, I, yes. exactly. And Mort Weisinger, editor during the series, uh, 60s of uh, Superman, he used to say, and I've, I've heard this quoted somewhere, that they asked him why, why he has so many monkeys on his covers. <laughs> and he says, people like monkeys. Who the hell doesn't like a monkey? people like monkeys yeah so yeah i I agree there was a secret origins issue that was all about monkeys it was like congo bill congorilla uh the gorilla city and and gorilla grod and and some other character it was all because of that detective chimp yes Uh, i love that monkeys everybody likes monkeys so those are good um i i love parasite and i remember when parasite was new that was probably 66 67 when first issue of parasite and i thought oh this is good guy this is a good one that's clever touch me and take my powers please that was a good one i agree and metallo and we've seen some good metallos in superboy show and some other places but you're right nobody has done brainiac other than uh, Krypton last season and the first end of oh, the first yeah. season, I guess, Krypton, they had Brainiac, and he was really, really good until the end. The ending was a little weak, but most endings seem to be weak nowadays. But uh, I think also they didn't weren't planning on being canceled, so I think they probably had future plans because his little eye winked at the end. So I know they have future plans for him. But Brainiac, man, whoa. Cool. I want to see that big skull ship on the big screen. I want to see right. Brainy. Right? Yeah. I want to see it. All right, listeners. Uh, we are going to tackle the story Action Comics 554. But before we do that, we're going to play some promos and take a moment to thank our sponsor. For the month of November, the Fire and Water Podcast Network is sponsored by the wonderful all-ages graphic novel, The Only Living Girl. From David Gallagher and Steve Ellis, the award-winning team that brought you The Only Living Boy, comes this thrilling new action-adventure series, The Only Living Girl. Hi, my name is Andra. People call me Z. I was a normal girl. I loved science, my bear, and my dad. One day, tragedy struck. But that wasn't the end of my story. I awoke in a patchwork world filled with mermaid warriors, insect princesses, robots. A world created by my dad, who had become a mad scientist. Now I'm stuck in a world that doesn't trust me, in a conflict with my father's creations. Luckily, I still have my friend Eric and my bear. I am the only living The Only Living Girl, Volume 1, The Island at the Edge of Infinity, is available now in both hardcover and paperback from Paper Cuts. My name is Bob Fisher. And I'm the host of the Superman Forever Radio Podcast. On the Superman Forever Radio Podcast, I talk about Superman from 1938 to present day. 
and in 2018, we celebrate the 80th anniversary of The Man of Steel's first appearance in Action Comics with a full year of new episodes, more episodes, plus new features like The Adventures of Superman When He Was a Boy. Superboy is coming to the Superman Forever radio podcast. Also, the Superman Forever Roundtable Discussion Group, where I gather together some of the best Superman podcasters around, and we talk Superman. So if you want to know why I've been a Superman fan for over 60 years, point your favorite podcatcher to the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com. Action Comics 554 was cover dated April 1984, but the on-sale date, according to Mike's Amazing World of DC Comics, was January 26th, 1984. The story titled If Superman Didn't Exist is written by Marv Wolfman, with art by Gil Kane, letters by Ben Oda, and colors by Anthony Tolan. Julie Schwartz edited the book, and Gil Kane drew the cover, which sports a 75-cent price tag. Uh, the cover shows two young boys holding up a sketch pad with a picture of Superman on it, as in the background we see a kind of goofy-looking alien invasion army flying over buildings and marching a group of like, human prisoners down like some you know street or, or hallway or something. Uh, what do you think of this cover? Oh, I like the cover. I like the cover quite a bit, actually. It's, you know, lets us know what's going on, which I like in covers. I like them to not tell us the whole story, but to give us an idea what's going on. And anytime you got two kids drawing a picture of Superman on a comic book, you kind of have to say, what's going on here? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I forgot, to, I forgot to mention that there's a text caption blister that says, if Superman didn't exist, someone would have to create him, yeah. uh, which gives you a little sense of what we are in for with this story. And a big bright red arrow pointing down <laughs> to the two kids. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> All right, let's get into this. An armada of alien invaders called Xandrians hovers over the Earth. Their ship's scanners confirm what they already know, that Earth will offer no resistance to their invasion, that the Earthlings are, in fact, incapable of even thinking about fighting back. Long ago, when humankind was young, the Xandrians planted power pyramids all over Earth. The energy created by these pyramids fostered passivity in humans. Violence was unheard of, and heroism inconceivable. Once the aliens begin their conquest of Earth, we see that a lack of heroes is not the only thing different about this Earth. There are no urban centers and hardly any industry. What used to be the great cities of London, New York, and Metropolis are rural farming and fishing communities now. What little buildings and shabby huts exist are quickly destroyed by the Xandrian forces. But the people are spared because the Xandrians aren't about slaughter. They need people for their labor force. On the outskirts of one of the villages, two boys run and play, totally oblivious to the invasion. The boys are too busy thinking about their stories, about the main character of their story, a guy who can fly like the birds, a guy so powerful he can lift mountains. The boys are named Jerry and Joey. Jerry and Joey are not well-liked by the other boys in the village who have no use for things as silly as stories. Stories can't plow the fields or cook dinner. The boys ridicule Jerry and Joey before going swimming in a pool at the rock quarry. 
That's when a Xandrian ship flies overhead and fires a powerful laser into the pool, and the swimmers simply vanish. Jerry and Joey run home, run to Joey's place, but his parents aren't there. We see how the Xandrians first came to Earth, playing the long game with their pyramids that would take ages before taking effect. We learn that Vandal Savage discovered the pyramids and tried to harness their energy, and that Superman tried to stop him. Superman partnered with Rip Hunter, the Time Master, chasing Savage and the Central Pyramid to the dawn of time. Superman destroys it, unintentionally creating a temporal wave that ripples through all time and creates an alternate world. A world without Superman. A world without the Justice League. A world without heroes or the ideals that they strive for. Back in the present, Jerry and Joey find other people hiding out from the alien ships. They try to rouse the others to fight back against the invaders, but the people refuse. They're too scared. Their spirit isn't broken because the fighting spirit never existed in them. Jerry and Joey run from the hopeless adults and take refuge in their secret hiding spot in the caves, all while being tracked by the alien ships whose scanners pick up some vague sign of resistance. In the cave, the boys try to comprehend what's been happening and what they're up against. Jerry reasons the ships must come from outer space, and there's no way the boys could take on a threat that huge. But maybe their creation could, the character they've been dreaming up. Maybe if he also came from space, he could fight them, and that would explain why he could fly and why he was so strong. Yes, the hero is what the world needs. Jerry and Joey cannot fight for themselves, but they can create a myth, a hero who will fight for them. As Jerry describes what kind of man they need, Joey picks up a rock and begins sketching the hero on the wall. He must be big and powerful. He must wear a cape to fly, since wings would look weird. He must wear special boots because he can run so fast, and he must wear a symbol on his chest so that wherever he goes, people will recognize him, and they will know him. Joey steps back from his cave painting, and the boys marvel at their creation. Superman. In orbit above the planet, the Xandrian mothership scanners go crazy, reading signs of heroic resistance. The aliens broadcast a message to the people of Earth, demanding they turn over the two rebels. Jerry and Joey know the aliens are talking about them. No, not exactly. The aliens aren't afraid of two kids. They're afraid of the boys' idea. Joey and Jerry, now dressed as their Superman, run back to the group of survivors. They implore the adults to believe in Superman. It's the only way they can take back their world. As the men start to believe, the aliens grow desperate to stop this rebellion. They fire an orbital laser down at the ground. It cuts a path directly toward Jerry and Joey and the others, but the boys don't run. They stand their ground, believing Superman will save them, and just before the laser cuts them down, a swirl of light coalesces into the familiar form of the last son of Krypton. Like a bird or a plane, Superman takes off, rocketing through the air, exploding through alien ships. The Xandrian Armada tries to take him out, to no avail. He crashes through the mothership's hull and fights his way to the bridge where he comes face to face with the aliens, which turn out to be diminutive green creatures roughly the size of a chicken. 
the Xandrians plead for mercy, returning all the captive humans back to Earth. Not just the people, though. Buildings return, industry and infrastructure. The world goes back to what it should have been. But all that will not be enough for Superman. He will accompany the aliens to every planet that they have raided and ensure that all of the innocent beings they took prisoner are returned safely. While back on Earth, Jerry and Joey and their parents watch as Superman flies through the sky, noting that a hero can be anyone. From a strange visitor from a distant planet, to two young kids with powerful imaginations. And at the same time, across town, two other young boys named Joe and Jack gather in front of Jack's drawing desk and hatch out the idea for their own superhero. And that was If Superman Didn't Exist from Action Comics 554... Bob, what did you think about this story? Clever little story. I just thought a lot, really, really clever. Nice way to to honor Jerry and Joe and their creation, and a nice twist. And uh, you know, it's funny. Uh, one of the notes I wrote was uh, a little bit making fun, but a little bit on the nose here. It's Tinkerbell. It. Uh, if yeah. you believe, yeah. if you believe, it's uh, the cowardly lie, and I do believe, I do believe, I do believe. You know, it's it's a classic, uh, you know, a literature. You know, what's real and what's not. And uh, I just love the idea that they created a character out of their uh, out of their mind, and it's not. And and they hit it right on the money. It's not the beings. It's not the people. It was the idea. Yeah. And uh, you, it's hard to kill an idea. So, uh, yeah, I love the story personally. I thought it was a very nice, touching story and a nice twist at the end because you had no idea who those aliens were going to be. And, <laughs> right. and then to find out that, oh, that's very clever too. conquer a planet by taking away their will to fight. Right. That was very clever. And you take away their will to fight by taking away their historical myths and heroes. So the thought of fighting had just never occurred to them. It's very clever. Very clever. Yeah, I mean, I love this one as a brilliant kind of metatextual story about the creative process, mm-hmm. um, a love letter. I mean, not just to like Superman, but to the actual the, the guys who did it. The guys you know, who did it, yes. Like, who, who created this. And guys who never really profited as much as they deserved. And that could be said for countless people in this industry. Yeah, exactly. Um, but to just like to to make them the heroes of this story, who you know, just the the fuel of their imagination and their spirit, uh, and, and what that could create, because that's what I love about Superman that he represents the best of us, and he represents what we're willing to do and how far we're willing to fight when everything is against us. That, but to do the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Right, right. Not you because know? it's easy, not because, uh, you know, it's it's glorious or something, but because it's yeah, right. And, yeah. and I think that also goes to show the, the, the brilliant writing of Marv Wolfman. Mm-hmm. The guy is just is just really good. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, he has written some of the best Superman stories, definitely of that era. But stuff that holds up. I mean, this could have been written today. This is a this is a great little homage to to Jerry and Joe. And, uh, you know, it, it's not stuck in uh, 1980s. This right. story is not stuck there at all. 
And sometimes when we read older stories from any age, gold, silver, bronze, doesn't matter, uh, sometimes they're stuck. They're a product of their time period. This one is not. This one could be done today or could have been done, you know, 40 years ago. It's a it's a fun story. And uh, uh, Gil Kane's art. It's fun to watch Gil Kane do something, (laughs) you know, with kids and other people. Very few costume stuff going on here. This is uh, we see Superman for what, two pages, maybe two and a half. And so we get to see some Gil Kane rocket ships and space stuff and uh and we get to see uh, a Gil Kane Superman smiling and winking. I mean, <laughs> just does it get any better, really? I mean, come on. <laughs> what do you think yeah. about Gil Kane in general? Because I know, I know, like I think within our community, he can be a little bit divisive. I know a lot of people love him, and a lot of people not a fan of his. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's weird because uh, I think my first. You know, where I knew it was Gil Kane artwork were some of the Green Lantern, the yeah. early, the, the Silver Age Green Lantern, and then the Atom. Yeah. And I loved those comics. His art, I thought, was dramatic, <clears throat> you know, for, for DC and stuff. Yeah. yeah, I've always liked Gil Kane. I think it's interesting, though. It, it took me a while. It, like I said earlier, back in the Silver Age, you just really didn't know that there were a whole bunch of different people doing different things on a comic. So when you see Gil Kane and Sid Green, I'm thinking, well, what'd Sid Green do? Who's he? Mm. <laughs> and, oh, he's the inker. So let's see. I was starting to put it together. Oh, yep, so we, yep. got, we got a guy writing it, and then we got a guy drawing it, and then we got another guy putting the dark black stuff on it. <laughs> All right. We're getting here. We're figuring it out. But uh, I don't know anything about the personal life of Gil Kane. Nothing. I have not looked him up or studied him or – you know, done any of that stuff like I've done with Kurt Swan and Schaffenberger and some of the other Silver Age. But uh, just based on his artwork of the stuff I have seen from about 65, 64, 65 up to, I guess, even in the 80s and 90s, uh, I've always liked Gil Kane's artwork. And I guess it does depend a lot on the inking. I didn't I realize really until – you know, until recently, how important inking was. I say recently, probably 15 years. <laughs> but, but uh, uh, yeah, I think the inking now, uh, it shows a lot of different styles uh, and how much they can change. And I learned that just from taking uh, 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 Kurt Swan stories that I like a lot. And I'm going, well, why does – I know that he drew them both, but why does he look so different in this Jimmy Olsen comic than he does over here in Superman? Mm-hmm. And it was because you had uh, two different inkers, and right. and it added an entirely different feel or look to the original pencils. So, uh, and I think Gil Kane is is right on that line. I think he's a great artist, but his inkers have let him down at certain points, a little too heavy, maybe, or something. Yeah, but, I I also think this story, like his Superman run. I think it was coming at a time in his career when his his art style was changing a little bit, and I also think he was inking a lot of himself, and I don't mm. know if his, he was his best inker. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. Well, again, I, I definitely agree. Like, I like a lot of his Silver Age stuff, like from like with Green Lantern. I especially like his work on the Atom. I really like uh, that stuff. So good. Um, so good. But also, I, I mean, you you admitted that you were much more of a Marvel guy. Like throughout the seventies, he did a boatload of covers for marvel like a, a ridiculous amount of covers for marvel and i think they generally look really good i don't know who all of his inkers were but i, I generally I, I mean i think 
this era of Superman, these comics, I think this is probably where a lot of people are kind of like turned off by his style. And I think it just, it, it's so different from the Swan style and, and whatever right. thing that you saw before. And even in this issue, I mean, I might complain about like some of like the figures and, and there's kind of like a thinness to some of the features, especially in the first couple of pages. It kind of feels like things just aren't, aren't almost as finished Particularly, I, I think. Particularly, I think the space scenes and the ship scenes. The yes, that yeah. stuff looks almost like. Well, there's no people here. I'll just draw a quick spaceship and put some lines around it and move on. Right, right. But at the same time, I think because of the nature of this story, because it's it's one of those imaginary stories. Right. Um, and it's also just so different. It's it's not even just like a like a different take on Superman, but it's like this. It, it just it's just so different you can have a really weird stylistic ver- like story or art art style for this and it's it doesn't diminish it at all right um, right totally agree so. totally agree but i think i think when we talk about gil kane <clears throat> i mentioned the green lantern and the adam stuff and i think when you really look at that adam stuff that to me is some of the best Gil Kane artwork, particularly his covers. There's a comic guy, uh, his name is Arlen Schumer. He's a like an historian, mm-hmm. and he uh, uh, is really heavy into Neil Adams and some of the stuff that goes on there. Because we're starting to see in the late '60s, early '70s, different artists coming in at DC and changing and doing some stuff. But he'll mention sometimes the depth of a Marvel comic that. Uh, not in story-wise, in art on the cover, where things are coming off of the cover at you a lot of times in Marvel covers, uh, whether that's uh, Jack Kirby or uh, uh, Ditko's work or whatever, but primarily Jack Kirby's work. Big, husky, bulky figures coming right at you off the cover. You look at some of those Adam covers, and you're realizing he's doing that same thing, but to me, in a much more sophisticated way. It's cleaner. It's Adam is in the foreground, and you imagine he's two to six inches tall. He's like an action figure or something, <laughs> yeah. right? But he fills the cover with the bad guy way in the background shooting a bullet at him or whatever. Yeah. And I love those Gil Kane covers. They were just absolutely gorgeous. So I, I also give him credit for um, costume design, the Adam and the Green Lantern like, yes. basic costumes. Those are some of my favorite costumes in all of comics. Um, yes, they're they're deceptively simple, but they're just mm-hmm. so iconic and readily like visible. I just I dig those so much. Yeah, I actually in on Legends on DC Legends, I wanted to see Ray Palmer, Brandon Ralph yeah. in a classic '60s Adam. Uh, costume mm-hmm. and I know they can't do that. they're not doing spandex and stuff anymore and I know why and it looks not real good on TV and movies and stuff I understand but it would have been so cool <laughs> to see him in a classic Adam costume and shrink down and go across a telephone wire or something I, I would just love to have seen that hey, I love you, those stories you know what else Gil Kane drew he drew the mm. trigger twins in the 50s <laughs> <laughs> And it comes back full circle. It all comes back to Secret Origins. As That's wonderful. I didn't know that. That's great. As a, as a great little narrative piece, as as a done in one, it's it's your beloved. A it's a one shot one. story. Yeah. Um. I, I just I really dig this as a look at sort of the creative process, the inspiration. It, it's 
the power of mythology, the power of story and heroism, these characters. I mean, this is why I still collect comic books. This is why I go to mm-hmm. the, see these movies and everything. It's because of the power of these characters and, and this heroic ideal and the way it shaped me as a kid and continues to do as an adult. Exactly. Um, and the, the, the comic book is is a uniquely American art form. Uh, and I think that's why these characters have kind of taken a place as American mythology characters. Absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's the kind of thing, and it's funny because I mentioned earlier that I could read at four. So, you know, a good year and a half, two years before I got to first grade, I could already read and knew fairly big words, indestructible, invulnerable You know, I had read stuff about time travel and superpowers and people visiting other planets and aliens. I read all this stuff already before I ever got to first grade. And I remember when they pulled out that little first grade reader primer, see Dick run. This is Jane. See Jane run. And I'm thinking, okay, Dick, what's your superpower? Who are you? And when I just kept reading and it's, wait, it's just them playing with the ball? There's no mystery. There's no bad guys. There's, mm-hmm. oh, okay, Zeke, the far, that's got to be the bad guy. No, they're all just little good guys and no real story. I thought, wow, I'm going to go back to keep reading comic books. This, this, this <laughs> Dick Run is kind of boring. <laughs> I, I sort of, even as I'm, I've been like talking about it with you, I, I've been sort of trying to formulate it. And there's a, where Superman fits in my head and in my heart, I... I don't want this to sound like a criticism or anything like that, because I, I certainly don't mean it this way, but it really is represented by this idea. Because you pointed out, like, how much real estate is Superman actually in this book? Like, Not much. Like, mm. ten panels out of the whole thing? Yeah, yeah, not much. But it's all about him. Like, his yeah. shadow is over the story. It's yes. because it's about the idea of Superman, and to me... Superman is more of an idea than a character, and that might not be something that you or, or you know people who have loved this character for decades think about because you live and breathe with him sometimes. And not to not to make it sound like you're obsessive or anything like that, <laughs> um, but I, I always think maybe the the idea of Superman in my head feels a little bit more authentic than any representation I've ever seen in a comic or in a TV show or in a movie, and maybe that makes it too much of a pedestal, and it, it's so easy for like those things to fall short. But again, I I'm also a person who, when I first read Superman in, in like '89 or '90, when I first read Dark Knight Returns, I thought he was a joke. I thought he was a tool. Mm-hmm. He was, you know, status quo, a tool of the government. And I was all about, you know, the rebelliousness of Batman exactly. in that story and the X Men and like the the young Marvel heroes. It wasn't until half a decade later when I read Kingdom Come, which I read primarily for <laughs> Alex Ross's art the first time right. going through it, when I got late in chapter three, when, when Clark confronts Bruce in the Batcave and he's like, there's more that we've had in common than you've ever wanted it. When you strip away everything from Batman, it's you're some left with somebody who doesn't want to see anyone die. That's what we've always had in common. Yes. And I'm kind of like, I kind of see maybe Batman and Superman don't have to fight. Maybe, (laughs) maybe those super friends or cartoons that I remember watching when I was a kid, maybe they were onto something. Yes. Maybe they should be friends. And I, that just sort of the wheel started spinning. Um, but it was still, it was probably the early two thousands before I ever paid for a Superman comic. 
Interesting. Um, so my fandom came about pretty late in the game, and then yeah, and and I think because of that, it, it, it I did have sort of like this the idea of who he was formed before I ever really read him and, and experienced him and watched the movies and things like that. So it's just this weird. But on Twitter the other day, like just just recently, like two days ago on Twitter, <laughs> mm. somebody posted a tweet. Seriously, who would win in a fight between Superman and Batman? Oh, gee. I have no idea who who posted the tweet. I didn't even look. Yeah, I mean, how many nanoseconds are you going to give Batman to stay alive? I automatically blocked that account. Yeah. And I don't know. It, like, like uh, The only time I've ever done that is if I saw somebody post something that was like blatantly racist or mean-spirited right. or terrible or like against every value that I have. I have no idea who wrote that or what they believe in or what they... I just thought this question was so stupidly offensive intellectually. Yes. But the fact that he prefaced it with seriously, who would win in a fight? I was like, no, I, I can't no, take there's... you seriously. So, and I'm and I'm thinking like, you know, as much as the the problems that I see with like the the DC and the Warner Brothers movies and what they're doing, and I, I kind of want them to move on and and take chances. I want them to do a Legion of Superheroes movie or a Swamp Thing movie yes. or or um a, a a Golden Age Justice Society movie. Actually, do a period uh, piece like set during the 1930s, 1940s. Like I would love, please take my love, money. I would love any of those, but at the same time, I feel like I have this block yeah. in my head where. I can't get excited about any of these movies until they get Superman right. And some yeah. people might love Man of Steel. Some people might love the way he was done in Justice League or Batman v Superman. If yeah. I, I'm not kicking you, I'm not attacking. Like if if you like that version of Superman, okay. I don't. Right. I feel like they got him wrong in a big way. Yeah, I'm, I, I don't am think, so I, conflicted. Yeah, so I, I, conflicted. I, I can't trust DC movies again. Yeah. Until they correct that. Well, I think you made a good point earlier is that, you know, in your head and, and I've read thousands of Superman stories. Mm. I mean, so many Superman stories yeah. and some of them make me smile. Some of them I just don't even think about five minutes after I finished them. That's just like, OK, well, there was 15 minutes by. Mm. But when you look at him in live action and you said it earlier, You've got this image in your head, this thought of the person, the thing in your head. And maybe we do put him up on a pedestal a little bit because I've never seen my perfect. Chris Reeve was great, but that was not the movie I would make. Uh, I can nitpick those movies to death, but coming from a place of love, I could still nitpick them to death. Okay, I could do the same with my beloved George Reeves TV shows. You can pick them to death. People said that he's not making any difference between his Clark Kent and his Superman. And I will jokingly say, oh, yes, he does. When he's Clark Kent, he says, hi, Lois. When he's Superman, it's hello, Miss Lane. There's a huge difference. So we sometimes put these characters up on a on a mantle. In fact, to show them. I've uh, it's in my book I haven't recorded it yet or even figured out how I'm going to do it because it's a very touchy subject nowadays but in the opening which was only in the TV opening it wasn't part of the radio show or the Fleischer cartoons or anywhere else or the comics truth justice and the American way that's the TV show well we know what truth is a lot of people don't want to admit it but we know what truth is we hope we understand justice being equal under the law for all people. But what exactly is the American way nowadays? It means different things to different people 
and especially when I started reading comics in the uh, uh, late 50s, the American way meant one thing to those men and women who had just finished fighting a world war. Then it means in the mid-70s after those guys, my guys, had finished fighting a Vietnam war. And it means something very different to many Americans today. You know, so that's a it's an interesting question, but it's almost biblical. It's almost like when you open that door, wow, be careful. <laughs> be careful. But but Superman to me has always been that kind of thing. Truth above all else. Justice and doing the right thing because it's the right thing to do. Using those powers to help others. And um, Clark Kent, disguised as Clark Kent, mild-mannered reporter for a great metropolitan newspaper, fights the never-ending battle for truth, justice, and the American way. I, I love that opening. It's a great opening, and it sums it up, and, you know, it's my guy. You mentioned uh, uh, Man of Steel. A lot of problems with that movie, but not Krypton part. The opening is possibly the most dramatic and uh, – it's it's my favorite Krypton part of the telling of the the story. Uh, I, I it was my biggest complaint with the John Byrne retelling was that it wasn't a baby that they put in that rocket. Yeah. It was a Matrix goo thing. There's one thing for a family, a mother, a father, and a mother, a husband and a wife, to put a Matrix that will develop that they have no relationship with in a rocket and sending it off. And that's totally different than sending your flesh and blood. And especially, like in The Man of Steel, it's the first baby born naturally to that society in generations. And then to put that child in a rocket and send it off. Now you've got an emotional attachment that everybody understands. It's the Moses story. It's the putting my baby in this thing, moving it there, that it will hopefully have a better life than what we can give it here. Air World is about to end. And I thought The Man of Steel did that really well. The movie Man of Steel did the Krypton part really well. Uh, they got a little carried away with Jor-El and, and Jonathan, and I think they got their signals crossed. But, yeah. <laughs> but that opening was emotional, and after she shot that rocket off and the world is exploding, she knew right then, as the world is coming towards an end, uh, I just thought that was an emotional, dramatic piece, and it's one of the best I've seen done ever in live action. So uh, I give that really high marks. So watch that first 20 minutes again, and you'll you'll go, wow, yeah, okay. Emotion, mother, child, death, survival, hope. It's all right there, and it's, it's uh, I thought, done really, really well. Imagine if that rocket had come to Earth and there had been a wall in front of it. <laughs> sorry, I couldn't help myself. Sorry, sorry, listeners who want to keep politics out of comics because politics have never been in comics before. Never, ever. <laughs> One other thing, uh, touching on this issue uh, before we kind of wrap it up. Yeah. When Superman is fully formed, when he races up and he's crashing through ships and he attacks and he gets to the mothership of the Xandrians and he yeah. breaks into their bridge and he confronts them, he's merciful. Yes. He doesn't absolutely. kill them. He doesn't wipe them out. No. He just shows he's got he has the power to. He could. Mm -hmm. He demonstrates that. It's like, but yes. that's not what he's about. He forces them to surrender, to give up because that's again, that's getting to the part of who he is, his humanity. The, the sense of mercy 
uh, if not forgiven. And and a point that I made, I think, with uh, Chris Franklin on the first episode of the Secret Origins podcast, a big difference between Superman and Batman and their worldviews, especially especially when you get look at sort of like the post-crisis, the post-Frank Miller version of Batman. Superman sees the best in people, inherently, and Batman sees the worst. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because of their origins. Superman was created in an act of love and an act of sacrifice by his parents, and then yeah. he was adopted by people. Batman was created by an act of violence that took his parents away. Uh, so I think that kind of shaped their views of people. And I think, I think Superman will believe that Lex Luthor has the capacity for goodness, that he could turn it around. He might never, yes. it's, he, he might not put money on it, but he's got to believe there's a chance. But he's going to believe there's a chance and he's yeah. going to try. And the end of this story is just that way. Not only was he merciful to the aliens, mm-hmm. he showed them the right thing to do. Yep. And they then will now go and, and free all of the other planets that had been conquered by them in this manner. So, again, a terrific story, good morals, and, um, you know, we can compare it to, you were talking earlier about the epic Superman stuff, uh, when you talk about the death and return in the 90s, which was a brilliant undertaking by everyone concerned with that to pull that off. But to me, the most poignant part of that was not the big fight scene with Doomsday, or even, you know, the coming back. It was that funeral for a friend part, the world without a Superman. Mm-hmm. Everybody, Batman included, everybody realized what the world would be like without Superman in it. And I think a lot of times in stories like that, and this one, which brings up a part I'm doing for a future episode, is Clark versus Superman, mm-hmm. because we're having a thing happening in modern comics again where, gee, this has never happened before Superman <laughs> giving up his secret identity. Uh. Yeah. So I thought I would show the dozen or so times that it has happened before <laughs> and talked about it, talk about it a little bit, because um, it's how you do it and what you say and what is the difference between Clark and Superman. And um, that's another thing I just loved about this particular story. These two kids, out of necessity, come up with the only thing that can stop an imaginary spaceship attack is an imaginary superhero. Yeah. Uh, it really was. It's funny when you mentioned that this is what you want to do, this particular issue. I'm like, you know, wow. So I went through my database and said, well, yeah, there it is. I got it. <clears throat> but I didn't remember reading it at all. Mm-hmm. So reading it this week was like reading it for the first time again, yeah. which was very cool. So I like doing that when you have a comic and you think you know so much and you've read all these stories. But sometimes it's like, wait a minute. It's in my database. I've marked it as red. It's been there for, you know, 30 years or 20 years, I guess. Wait a minute, 84? Been there a while. Jeez. So so I want to thank you for, for mentioning this because, uh, again, I love stories that either don't remember or I haven't read before. And I didn't remember this one at all. And that was such a fun – that's a pleasure because you that way I was totally surprised at the end. I am thrilled to hear that because uh, yeah. again, again, like I just I have <laughs> I have no regular <laughs> venue for talking about this character, but it was somebody that I definitely want to, and and I really wanted to talk about you because we the last time we talked was like three years ago, um, <laughs> so yeah, it, it was great to have. This. I, I'm glad that you enjoyed this story as much as I did. Again, oh, uh, a wonderful 
really smart, really clever tribute to first and foremost Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. But I always love the. I also love like that last panel when they're they're homaging Jack Kirby and Joe Simon too, and is about yes. to create Captain America. Yeah, uh, I had to do a double take it. on that. I had to go back and do a double take, <laughs> thinking, "Wait a minute, if." I thought at first it was Joe and Jerry again yeah. thinking, well, we've already created this. We'll never top that. What are we going to do now? And then I looked at him and went, wait a minute. That's not Joe and Jerry. That's Joe and Jack. Yeah, yeah the other so, Joe. Yeah. yeah, so I thought, oh, that was, again, a very clever uh, and and bringing it in at a time. But in the 80s, there were, there were a couple of uh, uh, crossovers between mm-hmm. Marvel and DC. So they didn't – they weren't at each other's throat. Right. At that in that time period, and lawsuits and stuff. So, but yeah, I had to go back when I went. Wait a minute, that's not a th- that is little Jack and Joe. Yeah. Oh yeah, cool. <laughs> All right. Um, yeah, gosh, this was uh, this was a great conversation. I'm glad that we got a chance to do this. Um, yeah, me too. Before we go, listeners, uh, in the spirit of the holidays, I have got a little contest giveaway for you guys. Those of you know the Fire and Water Podcast Network is on Patreon. Everyone here on the network does our best to provide our audience with almost daily content, and we do that because we love this, we love our community, but generating as much content as we do does cost us, so if you would like to make a monetary donation to help us offset our costs and show your appreciation for the network, that would be wonderful and we would love you forever. And as a bonus, I am offering a free gift to one of our lucky Patreon subscribers, This episode, you heard me mention the hardcover collection Adventures of Superman Gil Kane. It's 380-something pages of full-color Superman awesomeness that originally retailed for $39.99, but you can have it for much less than that. All you have to do is be a Patreon subscriber to the Fire & Water Network, and if you're not already, you can join any time. Here's the contest rules. Go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and you will see a post for this contest. All you have to do is leave a comment on the post telling me what your favorite Superman story is. And it doesn't matter if it's from comics or other media. It also doesn't matter if you donate $1 a month or more. The contest will be open for 10 days and on December 9th, I will select one random patron to win. Again, all you have to do, go to patreon.com slash fwpodcasts and leave a comment on this post with your favorite Superman story. Contest is open to any of our Patreon subscribers, so join us today if you haven't already. The winner will be notified on December 9th to get shipping details. Good luck to everyone who participates. Bob, thank you once again for joining us. Where else can people find you online or in this community of podcasters? Well, thank you, Ryan, for inviting me back. This is a blast. Uh, it's my favorite thing to talk about. <laughs> and because I happen to have a show called Superman Forever Radio, I talk about Superman a lot. And Superboy now. I've added every other episode. I'll go back and grab a Superboy story. Uh, the Adventures of Superman when he was a boy. Not the clones and nothing against Connor and all the clones. Yay for 90s clones. <laughs> <laughs> but but I talk about the adventures of Superboy, uh, Superman when he was a boy, every other episode of the Superman Forever radio podcast. And you can find that at supermanforever.com, supermanforever.com. I'm also on Facebook. I'm not on Twitter. One social media. That's it. <laughs> that that's should enough. be enough. That's enough. 
though, and that's it. So again, thanks a lot, Ryan. I do appreciate this. It was a uh, it was a lot of fun talking about a story I hadn't read in a long time. It was great. Happy to do it. Happy to have this talk. Thank you for coming back and being my guest on this episode and helping me find my joy with this Superman story. Oh, Listeners, good. I want to thank you for tuning in as well. If you liked our discussion, please support the show on social media by liking or favoriting the posts on Facebook. Or, I mean, you know, just forget about Twitter, because in the sp- for, for Bob's sake, just Facebook. That's the only one that matters. Uh, you, you can leave a comment on the episode post at fireandwaterpodcast.com, and you can always go to iTunes and leave a nice five-star review for FW Presents or any of our other shows in the Fire and Water Network. For more information on how you can support the network, visit patreon.com slash fwpodcasts. Thank you very much for listening, uh, and have a happy Thanksgiving. Happy Thanksgiving, Bob. Happy Thanksgiving.